Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. We'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the lives and crimes of the infamous Cray Twins. How you been? A fucking mess, mate. I just aren't doing all over the place. What? All over the place. <laughs> doing everything. She did arrive at my house with tears in her eyes, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, because some fucker cut me out, cut me up on a roundabout, almost killed me, and I was just like, I don't even care about me. It's the baby. <laughs> <laughs> think of the children. <laughs> Won't somebody think of the children? I was like, if you kill me, yeah, I'll be pissed off. But if you kill my unborn child, I'm fucking coming for you, mate. Like, um, dead or alive, I'll haunt the shit out of you. I'll be, I'll be in your car. I'll be in your bathtub. I'll be everywhere. You won't get a minute's peace. I'll be there. Ooh, because you pulled out in front of me on a roundabout because you're an asshole. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's all fine, isn't it? Yeah. We're all fine. Safe. Good. You're... You're here, you're alive, you've got your peach iced tea. Delightful. It's a great day. It's a great day. You stink to be alive. of garlic. I do as well. I'm, I'm so enjoying sorry. every moment. I'm painting a lovely picture for the people at home. Hello, <laughs> I'm Danny. I cried earlier because I was full of road rage and I smell like garlic. <laughs> and I haven't done anything to my hair today, but I did wash my face and I am wearing pants. So, you know, I think always a bonus when the pants are that involved. Is, that is a bonus. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm I'm still thinking about our conversation that we had in the car, though. Oh, no. What did we talk about? Cranes. Oh, <laughs> OK. So we're two best friends uh, discovering the world of true crime, but we have been best friends for over 10 years now and in the car, we talk about cranes. Yes. yes. So we were having a conversation about the gentrification of the area that we used to live in. And then and we just said that we wouldn't have, there's no point in us living there when we were students if it was gentrified because we wouldn't have afforded any, we wouldn't have been able to afford to go to these lovely pubs and bars. Anyway, so she was chatting away and me with my ADHD brain was like, oh, look at that crane. And, um, and it, well, it escalated. Yeah. Like, whoa, like a crane. Like a crane. So we're talking cranes like building cranes, big, not like big, not like the bird. cranes. No, no, no. We're talking the ones with the big bits of concrete so they balance. And they're up there and like, they're amazing. How do they get them up there? And then Danny said, well, apparently there are cranes that make cranes. So where does that crane that made the crane come from? Who made that crane? Where do the cranes live? I have personally never seen a crane in transit. So like, how do they get there? There's too many questions. Are cranes real? Mm. I think we need a sound effect for that. Ah! That was actually perfect. That was appropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is broadcasting at its finest. I know, right? <laughs> I was in my office a few weeks ago. I didn't tell you this. This right. would have been perfect crane chat. Okay. Um, and I work on the fourth floor. I work quite high up, mm-hmm. you know, not physically. At City like, Hall! Just, yeah, just physically high up. I'm not high up in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, And there was a man in a crane just outside. 
and he was he was high up and he was in his little box you know his little crane box and i how did you get there mate the ladders yeah there was a ladder but i swear down i turned away for like 10 seconds he was gone he didn't fall out. I looked at the floor. There was no man, like, sprawled. People weren't running and crying. Like, he definitely didn't fall out. But there's no way he could have climbed down what is essentially, like, four or five stories. What is that? Three, three metres. That's a good, like, 15 metres. That doesn't sound that high, but I feel like that is quite... It was high. How did he get down? Where did he come from? How long does he stay there? Does he wee inside the crane? There Maybe. was just, like, a little hatch... Maybe he was in the toilet in the crane. They looked like there was a little box in there and I wondered if maybe the crane bit goes up and down like a lift. Well, uh, maybe... He could have gone higher. He wasn't at the top of the crane. Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson, and me, Danny Howard. Today we're we're talking talking about... about Not craze... Cranes. (laughs) Cranes. <laughs> We've got it wrong, Helen. We've got, we've done, all our research has been on cranes. Sorry. <laughs> and we've lost half our listenership because they don't give a fuck. <laughs> but there's some people at home being like, fuck. I never thought about I've never that. fucking thought about cranes before. <laughs> now I need to know. Okay, so let's set the scene. We'll talk about the craze now. Yeah. Craze. Craze. Back in time. It's early in the morning in London on the 7th of May 1968. The Met Police are about to carry out the biggest raid Scotland Yard has ever seen. More than 100 detectives are about to storm homes and offices all over the capital in a bid to rid the city of this dark and often deadly underworld. Under the watchful eye of Commander John Durose, Chief Detective Superintendent Leonard Reed, affectionately known as Nipper, has been working around the clock for 18 months to finally hold various members of crime rackets like The Firm accountable for their crimes. The most notorious members in his sights, Ronald and Reginald Cray. Ronnie got him in the neck. They started cutting him down the back, stabbing him. Reg had a great big hunting knife. He went to it fucking properly, put it up his guts. Wow. Yeah. I'm just going to say, a lot of the sound bites in today's episode are like old Cockney men. I they? fucking love that. Yeah. So, they sound well hard. <laughs> like, genuinely, and then he frightened me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had a really sad thought, actually, whilst I was doing my reading and all that for this. Will that, like, die out? The Cockney, the no. proper... No? Do you not think? Cockney will never die. Do you not think? It's too vibrant. I just... I just The youth. You don't really get Cockney youth, do you? Or am I not in the right part of the world? I don't think you're in the right part of the world. I see what you mean. Un- possibly. Um, but, like, there'll always be someone that's, all right, me down in here, you apples and pears. Yeah, but like, they're always a bit older, aren't they? Yeah, but they'll teach their offspring to talk like they that. They better do. I'm going to put a public bid out. Keep Cockney alive. All the alive. best places are getting gentrified, though. And I then know. people try and talk nicer, don't they? So. I know. Look, as if my accent's just immediately gone a bit more Croydon <laughs> now, because I, I like to fit in. At last, Nipper Reed's 18-month slog was coming to an end. After weeks of being met with the East End's infamous wall of silence, he'd finally had a breakthrough after firm member Bobby Teal had defected 
and started to feed information to the police about the Cray twins. I've seen the bad side of him. I've seen him stab people and shoot people. He was definitely a sick boy. The medication he used to take would knock a horse over. Nothing like a bit of gang warfare now and again anyway to liven things up. What a statement to make. It's just funny because they're all old men now and they're just like saying these horrific things. He, he said that with like quite a bit of joy, didn't he? Yeah. Ah, nothing wrong with a bit of gang warfare. Every little bit of stabbing, little yeah. bit of shooting, lovely. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I disagree. After spending what they had no idea was their last night of freedom drinking in the Lion Pub in Bethnal Green, both Ronnie and Reggie Cray fast asleep in their mother's council flat at Braithwaite House in Finsbury. And they're not alone. They're both in bed with blondes, Ronnie with a woman and Reggie with a man. At the crack of dawn, officers charge into their bedrooms, order them to get dressed and bundle them into separate police cars before driving them to the police station. Unbeknownst to them, it was the last morning they would ever spend together in their mother's home. Well, as London woke up on that sunny May morning in 1968 and two sleepy gangsters were driven at record speed to Scotland Yard, we knew only one thing. The party was over, but it had been great while it lasted. So let's go back to the start. The twins were born in London on the 24th of October 1933. Reggie was born first and Ronnie around 10 minutes later. They lived in a council estate with their mum and older brother Charlie. Their dad was on the run for most of their childhood and wasn't around much, but when he was at home, he was a little bit of a bad influence on the boys, encouraging them to do things which people that knew them would say was shifty behaviour. But overall, I would say that they had quite a nice upbringing and they absolutely adored their mother. And Ronnie was actually quoted saying... My mother, this is so cute, my mother was simply a wonderful woman. No man ever had a finer mother. We often had no money and very little food, but she always made sure that Reggie and Charlie and I had something to eat and something half decent to wear. She never gave in to despair or frustration, even when times were bleak and the future seemed to hold nothing. I would kill any man who spoke ill of my mother. I mean, apart from the death threat at the end, that was really sweet. It was sweet. Yeah. So the boys grew up in Valance Road and they loved to fight. Just loved a fisty cuffs. Fucking loved to fight. Love a rumble. Great, okay. They would form little gangs on their street and then challenge the kids on the other streets to what they called brick fights. Fucking hell. Which was essentially throwing bricks at each other. Great. (laughs) Nothing can go wrong with that idea. <laughs> that is horrifying. What is wrong with rounders or blocky? Oh, I don't, what's blocky? Blocky is where you have one person that counts, like hide and seek. You all go and hide. And whilst they're going to try and find you, you have to run back to the original post and shout blocky before they see you. And if they see you, you both race back. They've got to find you, but you've got to outsmart each other. That actually sounds like a really good game. I've never played that. We should play it. Should we play yeah. it after this? Yeah, okay. it's just us two. <laughs> just in the studio. It's like two metre by two metre box there. <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> Eventually, they turned their passion for fighting in what could have been promising careers for them. They started to box. It seems good, a healthy way to take out any kind of frustration and anger, and they like to punch stuff, so do it 
in a contained space. Yeah. Right? They got so good that they were winning championships. Reggie was the London school's champion and even turned pro. But all of that changed when they got into one fight too many outside of the ring and ended up in the Old Bailey at just 16 years old, ending any promoter's interest in them. And when you think about that, that moment, that could have changed history if they weren't caught or they they didn't have that last fight. Or that one fight. That one yeah. fight, because it, they would have been on a separate path. Oh my God. It's weird, isn't it? Doors. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we wouldn't be sat here talking about them. We'd, We'd be talk- talking about cranes. We'd be busy talking about cranes and having a lovely time. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't stop them fighting, though. And it certainly didn't stop them fighting each other. Freddie Foreman, a gangster in the 1960s, an occasional member of the Cray Twins gang, The Firm, met the boys through their older brother, Charlie, and knows exactly what kind of young lads they were. I remember the first time I went to their home, they were out in the backyard punching the daylights out of each other, you know, and uh, the old man and Charlie had to go out and stop them. But he used to say to me, Charlie, to have a word with them, you know, the twins, and see if he can talk some sense into them. But of course, they were too young and fiery. They, they wouldn't listen to what you had to say. You go in one ear and out the other, they still do what they wanted to do. It's funny that they were like, went into business together and were inseparable, even though they equally just like beating the shit out of each other. What a funny relationship to have with your sibling. Maybe that's like, you know, they get all the beat, beat the shit out of each other. You annoyed me, bam. And then there's only room for love. Yeah. But except, obviously, not in their general lives. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. No. Would we? No. Ronnie and Reggie were called up for the National Service when they were 18, but they had no intention of joining the arms and spent two years running away from conscription. By the time they were 21, they were ready for their first venture into business. They started up a billiard hall, but trouble was on the horizon. Almost as soon as they opened... Ronnie was put in prison for GBH after shooting and wounding a man. Right. So Reggie went solo, opening up their first nightclub, which he called Double R as a tribute to Ronnie. By their mid-twenties, with Ronnie out of jail, they were soon running clubs and protection rackets with sidelines in fraud, armed robbery and arson, and their reputation was growing. Here's Freddie. Over a period of time, their reputation spread. But when it first started, people went to them because if they had a troublesome business, a nightclub or a public house where it's a bit rough, they would welcome the twins into the, the business and put them on a wage because they would have no more trouble. You know, it, it was a sort of protection uh, business that was beneficial to both sides. The way that I personally relate to this, well, not personally, the one, the way that I can envision this is just from Sons of Anarchy. You know, you got someone have an issue, they send the sons down, they pay them, they're like, yeah, I need you to sort this person out because they're, they're, yeah? I had a very different view of Sons of Anarchy. Really? Yeah, I don't really remember them. It's been a while since I watched, I was watching it. As it came well, they out. they'd sort they'd sort out other people's business. Yeah, but that was because they, it was affecting their business. Yeah, but sometimes on the odd occasion they would go and just sort out people's business. Yeah, I mean if it benefited them. But I guess this was a bit more of a service. Hello, yeah. this scallywag keeps coming into my pub and harassing the locals. Can you sort him out? Yeah, so yeah, sure. Give me a fiver. You can't start shitting here because the craze will come and get you. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's film. That must feel quite cool. Probably not if you have to pay the craze to do that for you no 
But being able to say it sounds cool. I'm going to get my big brother on you. Get, I'm going to get my crane on you. Get that. Cray. Get <laughs> I'm going to put a crane on you. That's a threat. That's a threat I'd take notice of. It wasn't just local business owners that were keen to get in the craze good books. Celebrities from all over the world were coming to the clubs to meet them. Their reputation spread even to America because when a, when all the stars came over and uh, appeared at the Pagal or, or different shows in the West End, they always sought out the twins for some reason or other. I don't know why, but um, it wasn't as though they were supplying them with drugs or anything, you know, to get any drug. They, never, they wouldn't touch anything like cocaine or puff. They never used anything like that. Barbara Windsor was the, was the first one, of course because uh, she became a great friend. But in the back, going back further to the 60s, Jane Mansfield was one with, with her husband, but then there was uh, Tony Bennett and Judy Garland, Sophie Tucker, Billy Daniels. It almost sounds like they're a bit of a tourist attraction yeah. now. There's some big names in there. I know! Barbara Windsor being one of the biggest. Yeah. Peggy Mitchell. And I have a question. Well, a thought. A thought that swept through my brain. Let it out. How do these celebrities, especially the ones in America, like hear about the craze? Because you got to think about this is like the sixties. This is like local, like they're local legends, aren't they? Like yeah, but like how do without we have the power of social media now? How do how does that word of mouth travel so far? I just exactly that by that people talking about it these because they'll they'll all be running in sort of the same circles I guess but like they? people in Scotland don't know about the puppet man in Norwich do they they might do but also it's like how um everybody has an uncle who had a KFC once and it was actually a rat you know what I mean yeah like I guess they, they, I, they're like urban legends except these are people I know but I just can't think how that especially when they're doing naughty stuff <laughs> Don't overthink it. It takes away the magic of it all. Uh, just so... For context. For context, the puppet man is an elderly man that stands outside of Primark with these two scrawny puppets that look like they've been there since the 1920s or like a dog has chewed them. They're uh, scruffy. They He's are scruffy. so scruffy. And all he does is stands there to music and just shakes them. Yeah, and, and it, it, sort it, of it's sings ra- along. But it's the radio. Like the radio. He's, he's just got well, like a little boombox type thing. Yeah, old put, hi-fi. Yeah, and it's like the radio. I don't think he plays CDs or tapes or no. anything. And he, sometimes he'll like just sort of like murmur along. Mm-hmm. And um, so what's the legend that you've heard about Puppet Man? I've heard that he was a teacher. Really? A, like quite a high up teacher or a headmaster or something. Mm-hmm. And then he retired mm-hmm. and um, sort of just descended into becoming puppet man mm. also i used to work when i was working in a, a, a popular second-hand electricals retailer he used to come in and look at the phones he'd never buy one but he'd always pat the female members of staff on the bum so oh, I, I actually stay away from puppet man okay <laughs> yeah i'm um, also someone i think assaulted him or did something that was a thing in, in his property in in a place called great yarmouth and there was an uproar and somebody went after the person attacked puppet man yeah it wasn't he wasn't he was standing outside somewhere doing his thing with yeah. it and they they poured water on his stereo yeah and i saw the video there was revenge yeah Just people a, love puppet yeah, man like he he's is, like a local he is he is a local yeah. he's and, on postcards and stuff yeah and if anyone calls him any names 
you're straight on them like don't speak illly of Puppet Man. In fact, we'll put something on socials about Puppet yeah, Man. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, we'll do it. that. We'll do yeah. that. We'll put it on Instagram. Anyway, back to the craze. So bear in mind, so these celebrities are travelling to hang out with them. And these are men that are having members of their firm, the firm, beat people up to keep them in line, setting fire to people's properties to maintain them their control. Uh, but people fucking love them for it. You think it's great? It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. So um, surrounded by celebrities, their business is obviously booming. The craze were headed to the top. Cue montage. Bam, bam, bam. You can picture it. I got that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like from that. It's just like screenshot, like pictures of them chinking champagne. Yeah, lighting each other's cigarettes. Yeah, like glitzy with like people in like fur coats and like, ha ha. (laughs) Were they really charming? Because I guess that must be a thing. They were gorgeous. Were they? Yeah, I think they're fit. This is, these are the people from the Tom Hardy film. Yes. Right. So, their power base grew. Their personal lives moved on. Reggie fell for Frances Shea and they got married in April 1965. And famously, it was no secret that Ronnie was gay, although he later stated he was bi as he loved women too. Within their community, they were well liked, although people were obviously a little wary of getting on the wrong side of them. They were said to be polite, friendly if you were in their good books but sadly Reggie's wife took an overdose and died only two years after the two were married sparking rumours that her death may have not been the suicide it had appeared to be. Former firm, I'm gonna say firm because it's important, firm with a capital F, former firm member Billy Donovan and jewel thief it's just because they're all sounds so like old fashioned doesn't it like jewel thief this this scoundrel jewel thief (laughs) Lenny Hamilton both knew the brothers have their own theories about what happened to Francis this soundbite is um, (laughs) hilarious unhinged and (laughs) just two men bickering here we go Reg was in like conflict within himself if you know what I mean I think he was discovering what he wanted to be. He had a beautiful wife, Frances. She was a lovely girl, you know. She killed herself, then she took her overdose. Over there. Look what they done to her, Bill. Oh, you, you know, Len, it's all supposition, what you're saying. No, it ain't. No, it, it ain't. It is, Len. No, because Exley told you? me. Huh? Billy Exley told me. What did he me? know? He was dumb as arsehole, Billy. Oh, okay, like well, he was. Billy Exley told oh, me. He used to make them, he used to drive them about. I didn't get any of that. What the fuck? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Did Len even say words just then? <laughs> Translate for me, please. Okay, All I so heard at the end there was literally like... <laughs> I need a translation, please. All right. I will read back what they just said to you. Ready? She killed herself, didn't she? Took an overdose. Look what they done to her, Bill. Oh, you know, Len. It is all supposition what you're saying. No, it ain't. Blah, 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 talking over each other. Rah, rah, rah. Billy Exley told me. What did he know? He was dumb as assholes, Billy, sometimes. <laughs> no, he ain't. He was. Billy Exley told me he was a mate of mine. He used to drive him about. Um, I loved everything about that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'd like to go for a drink with them both. I'd stay so quiet. Rumours were swirling about Francis's fate, even amongst members of the firm. And it was no surprise, considering the dangerous world these people had grown up in. Bobby Cummins shared a landing at Parkhurst Prison with Reggie Cray 
and remembers what it was like growing up in the East End. Well, Reggie Cray, there was, there was two sides of Reggie. There was the Reggie that, in business, you wouldn't want to mess with. You know, you're talking about one of the most serious bits of work. But it's also that compassionate side, like, I learnt my rules off of people like that, like the Freddie Foremans and, and that, that you show respect. Love mum, love your family. If you don't respect your family, you don't respect no one. Kids were safe in our environment and elderly people were safe in our environment. Villains weren't safe in our environment. You come over across the manor, your manor was your territory. You come across there and you start taking liberties, then we sort you. And when you go out with a gun or you go out with a tool, when people come looking for you, they come looking for you at all. And there's an old rule that we used to have, better to be caught with one when you don't need it than caught without one when you do. Because if they jump out the motor on you, they're not coming to say hello. They're coming at you, cut you to pieces or, or, or shoot you or, or kill you. You subscribe to that world, you live by those rules. And you're groomed into it. Now, the Cray twins weren't the only duo ruling London's underworld. A rival gang, the Richardson brothers, Charlie and Eddie were based south of the river. They were famous for their brutal torture techniques and apparently had a reputation so fierce even the hardest of criminals feared them. Friends of Ronnie and Reggie have even later admitted that they were miles ahead of the boys in terms of intelligence but didn't have the charm the Crays were famous for. So you can kind of picture it like the Richardsons had the intel probably more organised, more yeah. divisive, whereas the Crays looked like they were more the people's people. The, and Being charming can really get you so far, yeah. can't it? Well, we've heard. So we've heard, yeah. So the Richardsons were really tortury. Okay. And their alleged specialities included... Ready? No. Pulling teeth out using pliers, <sighs> cutting toes off, using bolt cutters Fuck off. and oh. nailing victims to floors using six inch nails oh. oh everything about that just makes my bum cringe yeah my, um, yeah my asshole is tense <laughs> <laughs> gross <laughs> yeah that was too much sorry. i'm just bit, sorry <laughs> everybody's thinking about my bum hole now <laughs> <laughs> right so however the Richardsons weren't the only gangsters in London that got a bit tortury. Billy was an associate of the craze. This is Billy, by the way, from the pub. And unfortunately for him, managed to get on the wrong side of the twins after an altercation with another member of the firm. It was no secret that Ronnie was pretty unstable. A friend of the twins, Freddie, said that he took enough medication to knock out a horse. And sometimes... That instability drove him to the edge. He's come to the edge. His old Billy. When I got up there, I knew it, it was something was dodgy because they'd give you stand that side of the walls, give you standing there. And I said, Oh, out there, Lenny's out there. Well, when I got out there, it was a little kitchen. And he was standing facing me. His back was to the gas stove then. And he said, I was sitting there, he had an old armchair in here. So I sat there. So he went, so he went in, no, he was going to one, didn't he? You couldn't hear what he was saying. And all of a sudden he went, oh, you can go now. So I got up to go, he went, get hold of him. So two of his men got hold of me. And as he turned, I see these pokers on the gas. They were like cold steels with the sharper knives on, but I call them pokers, like, you know, you got one. He came over to me and I had black curly hair at the time, burnt all the hair off me. 
burnt a suit off me. He, when I got another one, he held it across there, burnt all my eyebrows off of me. Well, that's how I'm nearly blind in that eye. And almost deaf in that ear. Because then he went and got an hammer. You know what they beat state with, them hammers? And he smashed me in the ear. And done my eardrum and all the blood come out, like, you know. And uh, then he went back and got another poker. Can I swear? He said, now I'm going to burn your fucking eyes out. And he's coming at me with a poker, and someone shouted out, no, Ron, not that. And he just stopped, like that. He said, right, you can go now. Fucking hell. Now, Ronnie was, yeah, the unstable one of the two. And he and was part of their firm, like he was... Yeah, he Billy was, like, in the firm. He was one of them. And for him to just switch like that... Bear in mind, he was chatting, said you can go, and then, boom. He was going to poke his fucking eyes out. He's yeah. going to poke his fucking eyes out. And someone just said, no, don't do that. And then he just, back. That's quite terrifying, <laughs> isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. You just don't know what side of the Ronnie you're going to wow. get. <laughs> are yeah. we going to get unhinged Ronnie, or are we going to get all right Ronnie? Right, charming Ronnie. Yeah. Wow, okay. By early 1966, the Cray twins were the top dogs of East London, and had a reputation that crossed the Atlantic. They had nightclubs, trusted members of the firm working for them, and were usually seen as respectable lads. But all of this was going to end. This is mad Frankie Fraser, another gangster who knew Ronnie and Reggie since they were kids. Side note, Frankie spent 42 years in prison. 42. Bloody hell. Yeah, he's out. Wow. (laughs) Well, they wasn't very brainy in, in many ways. And they did get lured by some funny people and get led into different situations that they couldn't handle. It was too much for them. The man that led to their downfall was George Cornell, a childhood friend of the craze. Well, that's the tragedy. He grew up with them, George Cornell. But he fell in love with a girl from South London, from Nealington Castle. Very nice girl, top shoplifter. Fell in love with her, married her and moved over to her. And Reggie and Ronnie couldn't handle that. They thought he had deserted them. Very nice girl. Top shoplifter. What a badge of honour. Like, <laughs> <is>, <laughs> that's like being like, hello, this is my friend Catherine. She loves to cook. Like, <laughs> you know, like everyday people would say, but yeah. Like, oh yeah, she was lovely. Uh, top shoplifter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What? It's a, it's a parallel universe, isn't it? That's mad. This is Keith. Makes great headshots. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. <laughs> but yeah, they probably do. Yeah. Like, you want someone who's good with a hammer, go see Nigel. He'll smash a skull in seconds. Yeah. Christ. So George had joined the rival gang because he was that side of the river, the Richardsons. And along with Mad Frankie Fraser, became an enforcer for them, often leading talks of the Craze Boys. But... Tensions were growing, and on March 9th, 1966, it would boil over. Ronnie shot George dead as he sat at the bar in the Blind Beggar pub on Whitechapel Road. Ronnie later said he'd never felt so alive. That's worrying, isn't it? Well, I just don't know what come over Ronnie. That's why I say with those, we're on those drugs, when he got these manic urges on him. He, he would go out and do something really dangerous. He was a dangerous person. And uh, nobody knew what he was going to do. He just went and did it. I mean, he just walked in there in front of witnesses and loads of people and shot the man in the head, you know. 
And uh, it's a miracle shot because he's blind as a bat. He couldn't see to drive or anything. I don't know. It was just a fluke, really. Just imagine being in a pub, having a pint, and then someone just walks in and shoots someone straight in the head because they're full of rage. Yeah, that's horrible. And also, and it's a fucking miracle he didn't shoot, he shot the right person. Yeah. he can't fucking see. Right. Bloody hell. It's kind of, it's not great having a gang leader being that emotionally unstable. No, but also it would definitely uh, sort of inspire control. Because you'd just be like, well, you'd literally, you'd mind your P's and Q's, wouldn't you? Because mm-hmm. you'd never know what he was going to do next. The next year, Reggie killed two. Jack McVitie, also known as Jack the Hat. <laughs> Jack the Hat. He used to wear a trilby to hide the fact he was balding. Great. And the name just stuck. So Jack was a member of the firm. He was mostly an enforcer in the gang, but he was also a hitman. In 1967, Ronnie paid Jack £500 in advance to kill an ex-friend and ex-business partner, Leslie Payne, promising Jack he would get another £500 once the job was done. Jack the Hat and fellow firm member Billy went on their way to finish the job, but once they got there, they bottled it. They tried again later and visited Leslie's house, but no one was in, so Jack and Billy just gave up keeping the 500 pounds and never doing what Ronnie had asked them to. That's a bad idea, guys. You don't mess with Ronnie. This was to be the end of Jack the Hat. Well, by then, Jack the Hat had got out of hand. He was flash and saying nasty things about them and everything like that. So therefore, he had to go. There's no doubt about it, yeah. A shame, because at one time he had been a nice guy. I don't know what he's playing at. What was he doing? He's a brave man. He Fucking is. foolish. He had a death wish and he got it. My God. In October 1967, Jack was invited to a party on Evering Road in Stoke Newington. It was going to be a big night. The whole house filled with gangsters and their families. What Jack didn't know was that the craze had arrived at the house first and had spent an hour getting rid of other guests. Their plan was to shoot Jack on arrival, but Reggie's gun jammed. Instead, he lunged at Jack, stabbing him in the head, face, chest and stomach. His body was never found. Freddie Foreman was found guilty of being an accessory to the murder, but insists it wasn't premeditated. Roddy Cray smashed him in the face with a glass and told him to go to use the F word and go. And he went out of the room and he turned around and came back in again. And he could have walked out of the house. He could have gone out. And they sat there and they were screaming at each other and arguing. And it went on for quite a considerable time. And there was witnesses there, two young guys who were croupiers, who had made statements to this effect. And a lot of other witnesses made statements. But they were never produced at the trial, those statements, which they should have been. And that would prove that it wasn't premeditated to kill him that night. But it, it was got out of hand, and that's when a knife was produced by one of the firm, pulled it out of the kitchen and gave it to one of the twins, which was a stupid thing to do. And that's how he got killed. But uh, it wasn't intentional that night. Charlie was the one who always came to me and said, can you help the twins out? They're in trouble, they've done something stupid, they've done something silly. 
when Jack the Hat, I was in, in my bed at three o'clock in the morning. I was asleep when all this thing was going on. And um, they, uh, they wanted me to help them out to clear up the scene afterwards. No one knows what happened to Jack the Hat's body, but member of the firm Billy has his own theory. Burnt it. Burnt it. And pole, they had a pole. Yeah. He had a breaker yard and he used to smelt a lot of alley. That's in my book. So he used to dump them in a big deep freeze. That's right. He had a big chest freezer. You freeze them up there for about a week. Then you know them saws are cutting the meat and band, the fish would had a whole one the of them. He used to saw them up, put them in the smelt, they have a gun in there now. Old That's body. where the bodies went. But he's my mate, Jack, he's a good fella. I've had some white laughs with him. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not laughing at the situation. I'm laughing at these two. At them two talking about this as though it's just so normal. If this is they're talking about this like we talk about cranes. Yes. Like. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just picturing two old cockney men just talking about chuck his body in the freezer, deep freeze it for a couple of weeks and cut it up. So Len was really talking over him then. Basically, what they would do at first is they would put the bodies in a big chest freezer, freeze them up for about a week, and then they cut the meat with bandsaws, right. saw them up, put them in the smelt, and they were gone. The whole body, it was just gone. Oh, I guess like that gets really, really hot, doesn't it? So it would melt all the bones and yeah. everything. Oh, wow, okay. So no right body to be found. Right, okay, smelting. It was the Jack McVitie and George Connell murders that gave the Scotland Yard enough evidence to arrest Ronnie and Reggie. On 6am on the 9th of May 1968, the police smashed their way into their home and arrested them both. The brothers gave up without a struggle. Members of the firm were terrified that Ronnie and Reggie thought they had ratted them out. He didn't do it. But then when I was in, I was in prison and uh, they got a letter smuggled into me, if the police come... To see me, don't talk to them. Otherwise, they're going to shoot my two kids. That's how it goes, though, isn't it? Trying to find a snitch, get the families involved. It would keep you quiet, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Eventually, Lenny decided the safest thing to do would be to put the Cray twins away. He went to the witness stand and testified against them in their 39 day murder trial. Ronnie and Reggie were testified against by almost every member of the firm. But even with their entire outfit turning against them, they were still super charismatic to everybody, as they'd always been. Bobby Cummins was only 16 when he first met Reggie at the Old Bailey. It was funny, because when I got dumped and sawn off, that's when I met Reggie and Ronnie. Because um, they was at the Old Bailey, it was the old Old Bailey in them days, and they was walking along the landing, because they was on trial when I was a young kid. I knew who they was, but I didn't know them at that time. And uh, it was Ronnie. He went to me, what are you doing here? I said, right, I'm here for coming a sort of armed robbery. He went, you cheeky little so-and-so. He said, fair play to you. He said, I'll probably see a lot of you in here. I said, you probably will. On the 4th of March, 1969, Ronnie and Reggie Cray were found guilty of murder and sentenced to life. The judge said they should serve no less than 30 years. Freddie Foreman was sentenced to 10 years inside for his part in the murder of Jack the Hat. The Crays were finally where the police wanted them to be even though they had tried and failed to convict the twins of the other murders the job was still done and justice of george cornell and jack mcvitie had been served 
time could finally heal for those affected. But for Reggie and Ronnie, time was the only thing that wasn't going to help. It just went on and on in prison. Reggie told journalists that life in Parkhurst was a constant battle for sanity and survival. Gangster Bobby knows exactly what life was like inside the prison. Parkhurst, one of the most respectful places I've ever been in my life, for good manners, because we was all told up, every one of us in there. We nicked a garden shear. Reggie had half, I had half, so I had a blade about that long. And we would wrap that in a towel under there. Then we used to have the grey overcoats in them days. The poachers' coats, they used to call them. We carried a blade in that when you ran the exercise job because if it kicked off, as I say, it was a very, very respectful place because we'd all say good morning to each other. No one jumped the queue because everyone was a potential killer in there. You know, Parker's was Britain's Alcatraz. You know, you could be sitting there watching telly and someone come in with a boiling jug of milk with sugar in it, tip it over your head and burn your face off. That's the reality of prison. Well, that sounds terrifying and horrible. Wow. Then the unthinkable happened for the craze. Outside, rival gang, the Richardsons, had finally been caught by the police and had been sentenced. And Charlie Richardson was on his way to Parkhurst Prison to join Reggie Cray. No way. Who did that? Uh, <laughs> someone that who, wanted like a laugh. Yeah, who made that choice? Well, the thing was, I was friends with Charlie and Reggie. It had been a long war going on between both families, you know, and... and you know, people were very heavy because you, you've got to look at, if it goes off in there, what side are you going to take? Because you couldn't be true to two. You know, you, you had to take one side or the other. It got to a stage where people were going like, you know, the bond's got to be made. You can't walk about wondering if it's going to go big time. And so they had to get someone who both of them knew and trusted. The word was put, like, you go and sit with them and, and sort it out. They were either going to have to live together or die. And even without the Richardsons rocking up, the Crays were marked men. They were on the lookout at all times. Well, you've got, you've got to look at it, the hierarchy in prison. You know, you're talking about people like Reggie Cray, Charlie Richardson. If you cut one of them, I'm the guy who cut Reggie Cray. Now you're a celebrity, right? You're going up the ladder. But if we allowed that to happen, then the next target would have been Charlie, then it would have gone all round, and one of us, it might have been my turn next time round. And the thing was, we were prepared to kill them if necessary. And we weren't, we weren't worried about that. If it comes down to that, better them go than we go. But send a message out, you hurt one of ours, then you're hurting all of ours. And we're gonna come and get you, you're not getting away. My side note here is, it's funny that we live such different lives. Like, theirs is just so unrecognisable, because, you know, here we are in this comfy studio, with our coffee or iced tea. I'm planning to make tacos for my mum later. And there's people whose life is predominantly ruled by violence. Yeah, that's it's a kill or, be, kill or be killed. Yeah, like imagine if we were hanging out, right, and someone had something to say about a pasta dish that you made. So I went and cut them for hurting your feelings. <laughs> Why are you smirking? I don't know what to say to this. <laughs> You're literally like, yeah, it would be smart. a telly grateful. <laughs> yeah, you do that. <laughs> I'm just naturally aggressive. <laughs> but you're not violent. I'm not violent. But, no, but um, what, I'm, what I mean to say is that violence is so entrenched in their life and normal for them. Like, that's their normal. And yeah, it's so it's, funny how people around the, like, the world have norms that are so polar opposite to other people. Or even incomprehensible. Yep. 
yeah it, it's 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 wild and it's unimaginable but I guess that's why like so much media content has been made from this yeah isn't it? there's been multiple films multiple books multiple like characters based off these people because it's so sort of wild and outlandish that it's it creates great story doesn't it because people it's out of intrigue yeah it's it's for the normal day-to-day person this lifestyle is crazy unimaginable crazy oh my god (laughs) i see what you've done (laughs) that was great thank you thank you thank you Ronnie and Reggie tried to see each other as much as the authorities allowed and their mum, Violet, visited them twice a week until she died in 1982. Ronnie served most of his sentence in the psychiatric hospital, Broadmoor, and Reggie spent his time as a Category A prisoner inside maximum security prisons across the country. The twins were never offered parole. Ronnie never left Broadmoor and died of a heart attack at 61. Reggie was released on compassionate grounds a few weeks before he died. I was with him, Reggie, when he died. I sat up next to him in the bed when I released him. And uh, Joey Powell and Johnny Nash, we went down to see him at this hotel. And uh, I sat on the bed with him while, and he t- when he took his last breath, you know. It's weird that we went there that day. It seemed that he was waiting for to see us before he he passed away. It was weird. The whole family's died in prison, sad, really. Oh, it was like the, the finish of a, an era, really. Sad, sad. Reggie died from cancer at the age of 66. Now, I'll never forget one thing Ronnie said, never make excuses for what I've done. He didn't regret anything, he did it his way. And Reggie was the same. Reggie was the same. They lived their life the way they meant to live it and they lived by their rules and our code of ethics and they never sold out. It's surprising how many followers they've got all over the country, you know. You never had gangsters like them. What sort of a legacy is it it leave for young generations that are coming through to say, well, look what happened to them. You want to follow in their footsteps? The, the, whole, the three brothers all died in prison. Sad, sad story. And it doesn't advertise committing crime, does it? No. No, it doesn't. That is correct. Um, It's kind of odd, isn't it, how sort of these people that we're hearing from are people who testified against them or part of it. Um, But yet they still speak with like quite a... Speak about them, speak about Reggie and Ronnie with like quite a lot of respect and love. Yeah. Like um, it must be a testament to how charming these men were that you could be afraid of them and afraid for your afraid for your family and and your loved ones because of them mm. but still be sad to see them die like yeah um it's very interesting it's, it's a very uh complex relationship isn't it yeah do you think that they testified against them because they were looking out for their own good not not the individuals they were looking out for the twins because clearly things were starting to get a little bit out of hand with violence well quite out of hand yeah well, like you know yeah getting like a bit getting them away before they do something stupid and yeah, get themselves yeah. killed type thing yeah I, th- I think you could be right and I guess also it's like you know if my sister killed somebody I and I watched like I would test you know I'd, I'd have to testify against her I would still love her because she's my sister yeah. even if I'm horrified by what she's done yeah and I'm, that's probably yeah. the same 
really. Um, I don't think she would kill anyone. No. But she, I don't know, she could have a secret rage inside of her tiny little body. <laughs> <laughs> she is tiny, isn't she? There's the small ones, the small quiet ones you got to watch. Yeah. But that was the Cray Twins. That was a ride. So that was the Cray Twins. Now, on to Cranes. <laughs> Next week, we're going to talk about Combine Harvesters. <laughs> Next time on Devils in the Dark, with me, Helen Anderson, and me, Danny Howard, we're looking at one of the deadliest mass shootings in British history, the Hungerford Massacre. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode on Devils in the Dark. And in the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios.